I know that next week is the Lord's Day, uh, Resurrection Sunday. Today's the Lord's Day too. But I see no reason to wait to talk about the resurrection. Um, it is not a seasonal event, is it? Uh, it means everything now. It is a fact of history. It means everything now, and it means everything for our eternity. We've got to consider the resurrection and get our hearts and minds right when we think about the fact that Jesus is risen. It is the climax of history past. It is the culmination of history future. You know, this time of year, we do focus on the cross a lot, and rightly so. Jesus bled for us. Jesus died for us on the cross. Jesus absorbed the wrath of His Father against all the sins of everyone who's going to believe in Him on the cross. So it is right for us to think about the cross. But the cross is not the end. The cross was not the end of the story. Death was not the end. Death led to another place, and that was an empty tomb. And if we don't have an empty tomb, the cross really accomplishes nothing more than someone who was accused of blasphemy being put to death. It is the empty tomb that validates what Jesus did on the cross. It is the empty tomb where we see that sin is defeated, death has been conquered, and we have hope. And hope is not wishing for something in the Bible. Hope is certainty of something that is going to happen. And we thank God this morning that the tomb is empty. We thank God this morning that Jesus has been raised and that in His resurrection we have been given everlasting life. It is the proof that Jesus' death satisfied the Father. It shows the curse of sin and the penalty of death are and forever will be broken in Christ. And again, it is our hope. And that requires a response from you this morning. It requires a response from me and, and from all of us. So we're going to read Matthew 28. It's 20 verses long. And there is certainly more that I could say than on, on this passage than I'm going to be able to this morning. But let's ask God to bless the reading of His Word. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren, to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, 
They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, convict us of our sins, impress this word upon our hearts, and may you receive the glory and honor from how we respond to what we just read. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, the first thing I want you to see in this passage, and there's going to be four main points, but the first thing I want you to see is the resurrection itself. What happened that morning? Well, it was early Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and that's not a small detail, because the church in Acts, we read, will come to worship together on the first day of the week. That's why we are here on a Sunday. And that is proof of the resurrection. Because devout Jews would not have changed the way they worshipped for anything less than an event that merited such a change. They switched from worshipping God on the Sabbath, which is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, to Sunday morning. Sunday. It doesn't necessarily say morning, but Sunday. So after the Sabbath, Jesus had died on Friday, three in the afternoon, the ninth hour, according to what we read, that's three in the afternoon. And that's why at, at, at dawn Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary come to the grave very early. You see, since Jesus died at, at, in the middle of the afternoon, his burial would have been rushed before the Sabbath began. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, was with him, and, and there may have been others, but they rushed to, to get him in the tomb to, to, to prepare his body as much as they can. But they had to do it in haste. So Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary and two other women were with them. They're not mentioned here, but Salome is the, the mother of James and John. Uh, there's another woman there named Joanna. But Matthew focuses on the Marys. And, and, and these were the women who were the last to leave the cross. And here they are, the first to the tomb. And that speaks to their faithfulness. They loved Jesus. They, they believed in Jesus. But still, what did they come with? They came with burial spices. Now, Matthew doesn't say that. We get that in in Luke's account. They came with burial uh, spices because they were expecting to find a dead body. And many people today still treat Jesus as if He is a dead body. Maybe these women forgot. Maybe they didn't understand what Jesus had taught completely about His death and resurrection. Maybe they didn't believe the part about Him rising from the grave. I mean, that's hard, hard to believe, hard to wrap your head around. But they did love him, and they went to the tomb to give Jesus a proper burial. That, that's, that they loved him. So, Then verse 2, what do we find? We find that a severe earthquake had occurred. Now, this is the second earthquake in three days in Jerusalem. You've got earthquakes that, that announce the death of Jesus, and, and the, the veil in the temple tears from top to bottom. And now you have this earthquake 
that announces something else has happened. And what causes this? An angel of the Lord descends from heaven, appears like lightning, clothing as white as snow. That's a a reflection of the holiness of the one who sent the angel. A reflection of God's perfection, of His glory. And He rolls away the stone and He sits upon it. And the glory of God is what is shaking the earth. But the angels are not the ones who freed Jesus. Let's be clear about that. Remember, in Jesus' post-resurrection body, He was not bound by the limitations of the physical world. On the road to Emmaus, He vanishes from the sight of men, just like that. When he, uh, when, when he appears to the men, to the disciples who are in a locked room in John, He just shows up. He doesn't break down the door or anything. So, so the angel is, is not the one who opens the tomb for Jesus. The angel opens the tomb for us so that we can see that He's not there. The tomb is empty. And this is after Pilate had allowed the chief priests and the Pharisees to secure it. Guards were posted. A a Roman seal was put on the stone. And if that seal were to be broken, the one who breaks it is guilty of a capital crime. So they're going to be next on the cross. But, But nevertheless, something has happened here. And God is changing the world through His Son. So at the sight of the angel, Matthew says, the guards shook in fear of him, and became like dead men. And that word shook, that is translated shook from the, from the Greek, is the same Greek word Matthew uses to talk about the earthquake. So the, the guards, he is saying, they experience an earthquake of their hearts and minds and souls, and they literally pass out. They are traumatized by the glory of God. They are paralyzed by their fear of God's messenger. But in contrast to the guards, when the, when the women arrive, what does the angel say to them? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. And the women had a reason to, to fear. Unlike the soldiers, um, you know, they, they had a reason to fear, but God's messenger comforted them. They... they um, They were women, first of all, going to a secluded place, a graveyard. But the angel says, do not be afraid. He says, he is not here, for he has risen. That verb, has risen, is risen, may be best translated, has been raised. Now, I don't want to pick nits too much, but that small change in grammar tells us something about God. You see, in John 10, 18, Jesus explained, I have the power to give up my life and take it up again. And I believe that's what Jesus did. But Matthew also seems to be shedding some light that Luke also echoes in the way he writes this. And it's that Jesus was raised by another. He's saying in the grammar he he uses here, the Holy Spirit-inspired grammar, that there was at least one other active party in raising Jesus, and I believe he's referring to actually to the Father and the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus was a Trinitarian event. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together so that we can say here this morning, He is not here, 
for he has been raised just as he said. Now, don't, don't ignore those words either. Just as he said. Jesus had taught his disciples. And these women had heard. They, they followed Jesus too. And they'd heard him say over and over again how he was going to be handed over to the chief priest, handed over to the scribes to be crucified, but that he would be raised on the third day. Jesus had said this. Even as far back as John 2, he's saying that destroy this temple and on the third day it will be raised up again. And on the road to Jerusalem from Galilee in Mark 8 and Mark 9 and Mark 10 and other places, he's saying these things. So the angel adds those words just as he said to show the women, to show us this morning that the word of God is true. The word of God is the truth and the word has been confirmed. A lot of skepticism about the Bible. I, just, I, I wish I could even remember what it was a couple of weeks ago that I saw archaeologists finding something else that just validates what the Bible says. This book is the truth. This, this is the Word of God. The resurrection then gives life to the Word in a sense. It is the truth. It really happened. Jesus has been raised just as He said. He is alive, He is alive, and He makes alive all those whom He saves from their sins. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's the resurrection. The second things I want you to see, though, are the ramifications. The resurrection has ramifications. Uh, What are the consequences? What are the implications? The answer is found in four commands that the angel gives to the women in verses 6 and 7. And these four imperatives apply to you and to me in a way as well today. And, And the first one is come. The angel says, come. First verb. And that's important because there was much to hinder the women from coming. Again, this is a tomb, a a graveyard, a secluded place. It's Dawn is breaking. It's not necessarily the safest place to be. You've got the fact that they're going to find the seal broken, and here they are. Will they be held accountable for the seal being broken? A capital crime? Maybe their sin, their doubt hindered them. It's obvious that something miraculous had taken place. Maybe they thought the ground was too holy for them. Even so, the messenger of God, the angel says, Come. And through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ today, God says to you and to me, Come. Come. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Beloved, it doesn't matter if you've been in church two weeks or 20 years, 28 centuries. When you consider the cross of Christ and the empty tomb, have you come? Have you obeyed the simple command of God to come? James writes, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Beloved, it doesn't matter what background you have. It doesn't matter what your past is. You can have no knowledge of God, no growth, no everlasting life unless you come to Christ. The second thing the angel says to the women to do is see. Come see the place where He was lying. And what do we see when we peer into the empty tomb, will we see how Jesus condescended to us? 
the Son of God, the Creator, took on human flesh, the fullness of deity, in bodily form. The King of kings, the eternal God, became a man. And we would not expect the King of kings to die, much less on a cross. But He did just that. Jesus condescended to us to save us. And that should cause us, when we look into the empty tomb, to to see the horror of our own sin. The horror of our own sin. Because that's what put Him in the grave. The wages of sin, we read in in Romans 6.23, is death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. When we look into the tomb, we should see the horror of our own sin and develop a righteous hatred for it. Do you come here today worshiping God and hating sin? A third thing we see in the tomb is a reminder. We're all going to die. Unless Jesus comes first, and I do pray He does, we're all going to die. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the tomb reminds us, there is another life for which we ought to be preparing. It is not all about right here, right now. What is eternal is what matters more. We've got to view everything about our lives from an eternal perspective, from the perspective that we are going to live forever with Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Fourth, the fourth verb, and maybe the most important thing we learn, actually not the fourth verb, but when we look into the tomb, Jesus isn't there. He's not there. So when Jesus rose, many still did not believe in Him. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't deny the tomb was empty. We don't see that in in Scripture. We don't see people saying, no, the tomb's not there. See, He's still there. Because He wasn't. They couldn't say that. Instead, they came up with other stories. Now, if Christ's enemies took the body, don't you think they would have produced the body when the disciples started preaching? And that preaching began to catch on at Pentecost and thousands upon thousands of souls were being saved day by day. They would have produced the body and and that would have nipped this new movement in the bud right from the start. But they didn't do that, did they? And, and, And if the disciples took the body, which is the story they came up with, at least one of them would have fessed up, right? Rather than, than die a horrible death as a martyr, at least one, you know, and, and, and die a martyr's death for what they knew was a bald faced lie, by the way, at least one of them, you would think, would say, No way, I recant. We took the body. But that didn't happen either. Of the 11 who are mentioned in this passage, all but one, John, it is said, died a horrible martyr's death. And John suffered quite a bit himself, but God allowed him to live to an old age that he could write about the revelation. They didn't take the body either. Jesus is not in that tomb. He has been raised. 
Another thing we see when we look into the tomb is that we shall also be raised. Beloved, you should rejoice this morning. You know, she said to, to smile when we were singing victory in Jesus. And we should. You know why? Because Colossians 3.1 says, those who are saved are raised up with Christ. We have victory too. In the present tense, we have victory. And in the future tense, we know we will be completely saved. We will be separated even from the presence of sin. 1 John 3, 2 says, One day we will be with Him as He is. So we must come and we must see the empty tomb. The third command then is to go. Go quickly is actually what the angel says. And the lesson here is that while it may be tempting to lurk around, there's work to be done for those who believe in Jesus. The, the resurrection gives us work to do. Jesus commands His disciples right at the end of this passage, go and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And this is what Christians today are to be doing once they've come to Jesus and seen the empty tomb. If you've come and if you see, beloved, today, are you going Missions cannot just be programs, and I, and I know you know that. Missions cannot just be programs we support. It has to be a lifestyle we live. We live as those who have been sent. We go. And then the fourth command is we tell. What do we tell? Go quickly and tell His disciples that He has been ra- he is raised from the dead. He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. We go tell people He has been raised, and if you believe, you will see Him. And it's a lack of emphasis on the resurrection, I believe, that's one of the biggest problems these days. You know, it's easy to talk about the crucifixion. It really, it really at least I think it is in comparison to other things. When we think about the cross, that, that paints some pretty vivid mental pictures in our minds. It's not as easy with the resurrection because there's no body there. The resurrection, there, there's nothing in that tomb. There, there's a 19th century preacher in England by the name of J.C. Rowell. He puts it this way. I just want to share his words with you. He says, Let us beware of regarding the Lord Jesus Christ only as one that is dead. Here I believe many greatly err. They think much on His atoning death, and it is right that they should do so. But we ought not to stop short there. We ought to remember that He not only died and went to the grave, but that He rose again and ascended up on high, leading captivity captive. We ought to remember that He is now sitting on the right hand of God to do a work as real, as true, as important to our souls as the work which He did when He shed His blood. Christ lives and is not dead. He lives as truly as any one of ourselves. Christ sees us, hears us, knows us, and that should frighten us if we're in sin. But here's the comfort. And is acting as a priest in heaven on behalf of His believing people. The thought of His life ought to have as great and important a place in our souls as the thought of His death upon the cross. We tend to talk about, even Christians, I have fallen into this trap, we we tend to talk about Jesus in the past tense. But what hope are we giving an unbelieving world if all we're communicating is a Jesus of history? 
He's alive. And He is just as much Lord and Savior now as He was on the cross. And I would add to Ryle that if His life is important to us, we will go and tell. Don't be afraid is the message to us as well. And just as Jesus had gone ahead of His disciples into Galilee, He has gone ahead of all believers today to prepare dwelling places for us in His Father's house. The disciples would see Him in Galilee. And there's coming a day when each one of us who has trusted in Christ will see Him in His Father's house. And we'll be with Him forever. And so the disciples were told, and now we have been too. So how can we not come, see, go, and tell? Those are the ramifications. What about the response? There are two different responses to the gospel. Sometimes those responses vary in their intensity and in their timing. But inevitably there are two responses to the gospel. The woman, the women left the tomb quickly, just as they were told. What did they have? They had a reverential fear of God. They feared God in the right way. They, they left with great joy to tell the disciples what had happened. And for their obedience, what did they receive? They received the greatest encouragement in the world, Jesus Himself. Verse 9 says, And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take, my, take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see Me. So the first response to the good news about Jesus' life was an obedience grounded in faith that resulted in being with Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Obey in faith, knowing we will be with Jesus. The other response we saw in verses 11 to 15, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but the same men who engineered the crucifixion now engaged in the first resurrection cover-up. And two or three decades later, when Matthew was writing this, that story was still around. And I say it's the first cover-up because today, many still deny reality. Reject the truth. There are many who, who say even that they're Christians, and they deny a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. This time of year, you turn to certain TV channels, you'll see these pseudo-scholarly documentaries. You'll see books, magazine articles. You may even hear it from some pulpits. Not this one, as long as I'm, I'm the one preaching at least. I can't speak for anyone else but myself. But, but some say Jesus rose spiritually and not physically. So, so what that is, that's paying lip service to the Christian faith. But really, you're, you're throwing the authority of the Word under the bus. So one response to Jesus is, to not believe it, but the proper response is to do what the women did. Go and tell others He's alive. Obey in faith. Whatever the cost, because you know you have everlasting life secure in Him. That's being a disciple. That's the Christian life. And that brings us to the final point today. There's the resurrection, there's the ramifications, there's the response. Then there's the revolution. Faithful obedience, beloved, will always bring about revolution. In verse 18, all authority belongs to Jesus. All authority. We don't share authority with Christ. There's not a fourth chair carved out in the Trinity for us to make decisions about what's right and what's wrong. Jesus possesses all authority. 
in a world like the book of Judges, and this is a world like the book of Judges, every man does what is right in his own eyes, but the reality is still that Jesus is king, Jesus is alive, and Jesus has all authority. The church I'm a, a member of and a pastor of now, it's his church, not mine. Cedar Fork is his church, not anyone else's. Churches of Jesus Christ belong to Jesus Christ. And he's king, and, and he's also a revolutionary. The masses held Jesus as king because they thought he would lead Israel into a revolution against Rome. His earthly reign is going to come. But Jesus' revolution is first a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one. Those who see He has been raised, those who bow down and worship Him now as we see the women doing, and and as we see the disciples doing, will be part of His revolution against sin. If you're not fighting sin, you need to ask yourself, do you belong to Christ? You know, we all know Christians aren't perfect. They're forgiven, right? But Christians are also fighting against sin. And if you're not fighting against sin, then you're giving into it. So the first revolu- the revolution is a spiritual one. And we need to know also that, that we're not alone in this. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. So we're not alone, and we're not even doing it by our own power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that, that indwells all who believe. And that should give us confidence. That should give us to, to know that nothing can separate those who are in Christ from the love of God. Neither height nor depth nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so that should give us confidence to be on mission in this revolution. To be disciples who make disciples, who baptize these disciples, who teach disciples so they can make more disciples. 2 Timothy 2, 2 says the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust these to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. And that's what we're to be doing. That's the mission of the church. And it's a revolution that will end in revelation with a lamb who appears as if slain, risen, returning to reign. And two weeks ago, what did we see? That if we endure, we will also reign with him. So what response have you given to Jesus' resurrection. On which side of the revolution do you find yourself standing this morning? The empty tomb is the greatest proof Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the Lord. He is the Master. And the empty tomb means sin and death have been conquered for all who entrust themselves to Him. The empty tomb changes everything. The empty tomb gives life to the words that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we believe that and quote John 3.16 if we don't believe in the resurrection and live in the power of the resurrection? I'm convinced the reason many who profess Jesus and are sleepwalking spiritually, and maybe that's you today, I I don't know, is because we've lost sight of the fact He's alive. We've forgotten in this culture that seems to be hating Christianity that we are called to live risen lives. We've forgotten what it means when Paul says our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And He is our life. And when He's revealed, 
we will be revealed with Him in glory. And I hope you can claim that. I hope that that, that, that applies to you today. Come, see, go, and tell. Today is the day. Now is the time. May the glory of God shake your soul as it did the earth. If you're a Christian, maybe today's the day you need to rediscover the depths of your own sinfulness. Rediscover the amazing grace of God in showing mercy to you. And recommit to loving, serving, bowing down and worshiping a Savior who's alive. And if your heart, in your heart, you know you're on the wrong side of Jesus, there is a cross to bridge the great divide. And it's His cross. So come and be found in Jesus. The revolution has begun. Let's pray. Father, I ask You, I ask Your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins. Father, compel us to repent. Draw Yourself and draw us to Yourself. Grant to us the gifts of grace and faith and make us Your workmanship that we can do good works as a result of how You have saved us from our sins. May we be disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ until He returns. Amen. I believe our our song to, to close us out is Blessed Assurance. I hope today you have that assurance and can sing that with conviction.